Yes, it's another week without football, but Chelsea Miked Up, have you covered this week? There's still a lot of fun discussion to be had, and I unleash on Karen Benzema taking a pot shot at the handsome Olivier Giroud. Who the hell do you think you are, Karim Benzema? I unleash hell. And one of the fine Chelsea goalkeepers in recent history, Carlo Cudicini, makes his Chelsea mic'd up debut. And Chris Winningham, my lovely neutral observer, and I banter back and forth and fantasize what a World Cup-style tournament would look like if it were played in the Midlands of England at the Bet365 on a rainy (laughs) Tuesday night cold and blustery. Intro is over, Chris Whittingham, neutral observer friend. We have been bantering back and forth about my crappy Wi-Fi connection as uh, Chelsea, I'm sad to report, took an L yet again at the hands of Manchester United, which uh, is a little curious of a team to pick uh, just i mean i know you're a neutral observer but just uh, let's I was, just say I was you're trying, wearing a sky blue shirt right now from what i, can I was tell. trying to match up the skill levels of the team so i thought if i wore if i picked that team in sky blue that would be a like it, you don't you don't want to be accused of picking the best team and therefore you know you you win because you have the better team i wanted to pick a team that was similar all right well we got a show to get into here we actually have quite a bit of news this week i was we're in week three of this experiment here chris whittingham and i've been uh, i've been dreading it the first week we know that's an easy show we know exactly how to do that one Thankfully, Josh Hart and Larry Nance Jr. came around and co-hosted an entire show with us on last week's pod. Make sure to check that out in our archive. But this one I was really worried about. When the NBA players go and you have the initial shock of a uh, pandemic, the likes of which we've never seen as people, what do you do when all that subsides? Well, thankfully, we have news. And we'll lead with the good news, Chris Whittingham. Callum Hudson-Odoi has fully recovered. Chris, neutral observer, friend, before you give me your take on this amazing news, please fire off that Frank Lampard sound courtesy of the best app in the world, the Fist Sand app. Yeah, Callum's recovered. I, I spoke to him uh, during uh, the, the illness of whatever you want to call it because it, it, was, um, it, was, it was an interesting time the first week of this and uh, Callum had been feeling mildly ill. He said he didn't suffer too much, fortunately, uh, in his um, time with it, and uh, but when it was, you know, he, we knew the positive test. We all had to self-isolate for a period of 14 days from when we'd been in and around him. Mm. Uh, him being most important at that point, uh, recovered pretty well. I spoke to him a couple of times, and uh, he was just coming through the back end of it. Then and now he, he's good, so that we're uh, we're obviously uh, happy that he's through that, and uh, obviously now taking all the precautions with the rest of the squad as well. Now, Chris Whittingham, we weren't really that concerned with Callum Hudson and Doy, knowing how. He's a world-class athlete. He's still very young, and granted, there are certain cases around the world where perfectly healthy, fit, young people are getting absolutely debilitated, and sometimes even worse than that. But Callum Hudson-Odoi, thankfully, has fully recovered from this uh, this corona illness, Chris Whittingham. I actually want to hit the pause button a little bit on the Callum Hudson-Odoi conversation because I think in a vacuum, this actually lends itself to a larger conversation, which is just the general fitness of a club, if there can be any silver lining with all of this. As you know, we've gone into it week to week here. Chelsea was a bit of a mash unit where the season had ended. We weren't having Tammy Abraham ready, and Golo Conte was going to be out for the next few games, it would seem. There was all sorts of mysteries surrounding Christian Pulisic. So, Chelsea have the opportunity here to get healthy. I- I'm reaching. I know I am. I know I am. Yeah. 
But uh, to me, the the one thing that if there is sort of a, a downside of that is that everyone has lost their match fitness, right? That there just is not going to be replicating. And look, the club, I think, have done an amazing job. I was reading an article in The Athletic about what they've done in terms of establishing daily routines, establishing diets, sending players equipment if they don't necessarily have a fully complete home gym. They've sent GPS trackers to track the movement. So I think even though you can't really go outside right now, there are going to be players that are going to return in shape when that event happens but the good news is is you're going to approach that first game with a fully fit side the bad news is is they're not going to be fully fit in a different way but on that bad news everyone's in the same boat in that regard I really sincerely doubt there is one team that is more match fit than another Premier League side everyone's Mm -hmm. in the same sort of boat there are certain things as you just outlined that clubs can do to make sure that their players are as fit as possible but nothing quite gets you ready for the timing and speed of a game like actually playing the game you got to imagine if Premier League football comes back, and it's really hard to see that light at the end of the tunnel. And we'll get to some of the working theories that are out there from fairly reputable reporters that might give you some glimmer of hope that you might actually be able to sit on your couch and watch Chelsea Football Club this year. But everyone is in this same boat. Everyone has pretty much great resources once they get into the Premier League. There's only so many things that you can send to players to make sure they're doing their own due diligence and acting like professionals in their off time getting ready to hit the ground running but you got to imagine there is going to be some sort of period of time here where teams work themselves Mm -hmm. back if we do see a return to football well and one of the things that's been discussed and we can get to it now is a report from the independents miguel delaney where he's basically saying they're going to have world cup style camps right where each team is going to have their own facility where they're quarantined and you'd presume that's where they'd get a week to train and and get ready because you can't just go from not playing to playing. There's got to be almost a full-on preseason, a week, maybe two weeks where you get the players prepared. So you have to imagine there's going to be that. But ultimately, the first time they kick a ball again in the Premier League, there will be some lacking of sharpness it'll I'm not I don't want to quite say it'll look like the international champions cup but it could look similar just in terms of oh these guys are getting used to it again it's becoming increasingly apparent that if football returns it's not going to be what we're quite used to from a spectator Mm -hmm. point of view it doesn't seem right now like there is any working resolution to any of this that features fans coming back into the venues Chris yeah, it doesn't seem like we're going to have fans. And one of the things that also has been talked about is like, do you have a medical team that's at these venues? Like if someone has a real injury, are you going to take away precious resources from what ultimately is the fight to spread a pandemic? So there's all these kinds of things that you have to think about. But one of the things that we've seen in these closed door matches is that games without fans are a little empty. Like, yes, I imagine the first match, it'll be such a relief that everyone will be back. And it will actually be kind of cool because... If there's a full-on broadcast setup, you'll be able to hear Frank Lampard shouting instructions at his players, and it'll be really cool to hear communication between players and shouting at each other, shouting at the referees, and the sounds affecting the game that we normally don't get to hear because there's fan noise, but that's going to wear off pretty quickly, and you're going to be bummed that there's no fans in the stands, but ultimately... If they're going to finish the season, it has to be behind closed doors. So when I first read the headlines, it said World Cup-style tournament, and that goes to some of the the team headquarters and the pre-tournament camps that they're going to be running. But does this also mean, not necessarily in groups, but in terms of how the fixtures are stacked, where essentially in the group stage, your team plays every four or five days, we're going to see a, a congestion of fixtures if this is indeed, and granted, this is just a working theory that was put out there by Miguel Delaney, and he cites Premier League sources. 
this is going to be actually quite fun in terms of a viewing experience because they'll probably sack it like your World Cup viewing days too, right, Chris? It'll kind of feel like the Boxing Day fixtures where you have kind of three or four games every day and you'll you'll just be constantly playing games. And one of the things that's cool for the UK audience is that normally a lot, and we've talked about this before, how the 10 o'clock Eastern time, the three o'clock UK time kickoff is never allowed to be on television. Every game would be on television and free to air as well. So you know that they'll basically be creating a broadcast window for every game. So uh, I think it'll kind of feel like oh, this relief that sport is back and you have games every single day for you to watch. But yeah, that that's how I imagine they would stack the schedule where it's kind of a game, you know, three or four games a day separated by an hour. So it's like a 9 a.m. Eastern time, noon and three o'clock or something like that. Well, I think one of the things that's very interesting to take a look at when you try to consider a return to football is... China seems to have flattened the curve and is trying to get back into resuming some sort of normal life, i.e. their professional sports were poised to return really soon, but they had a setback, and the setback is asymptomatic carriers. So I don't really know exactly how possible all of this is without a vaccine. I'm hopeful when I read these things. Antiseptic environments, Totally quarantined from, I mean, it's the Midlands, for Christ's sakes. I think that <laughs> the funniest part about all of this is we get to find out if Liverpool can do it on a Tuesday night <laughs> at a rainy Bet365, Chris Whittingham, which is, I mean, that's when someone tosses out in the middle of nowhere for England, it's the Midlands. It's in It's in the name. It's the, bet, it's the Bet365 every time, no matter what. In our group chat, you affectionately called it the Britannia. In my heart, it's always the Britannia. And, and that's where it is. That's where the league is going to be decided on a rainy. Although, the thing is that it'll be played in June. So, the rainy night, the, the illustrious feel of a rainy night in June on a Tuesday night at the Bet365 is not quite the same. Chris, it could be August 15th. And the Tuesday <laughs> nights at the Bet365 are going to be cold, damp, and blustery. That is, a gar- <laughs> that is a guarantee. Uh, we got into it in great detail the last episode, the uh, Chelsea Bracket Challenge, in which uh, by just merely voting on the Fist Sand app, you are automatically qualified to win the Nets at the Chelsea Grounds. That's right. They're cutting down the Nets. And we are into our final four. And Chris... It's all chalk, brother. Yeah, the uh, committee got it right. They absolutely nailed the ranking of all the biggest moments in Chelsea history. So, Final Four, uh, I presume it's played in a, a neutral site, big football stadium. It's played on a Tuesday night at the Bet365. <laughs> it's cold, it's damp, it's blustery. And the 2012 Champions League Final will be going against the first ever league title. You were saying that historical things might not do well with the audience, but the first ever league title for Chelsea in 1955, still hanging on here in the semifinal round. Can a number one be a Cinderella story, Chris? Because this is a number one seed, the first league title in 1955. But if there is is a Cinderella to be had in this final four it is certainly the 1955 league title however I think it's going up against an immovable object in the 2012 Champions League final for my money the greatest Chelsea moment I have a really hard time believing that anything but that is going to end up winning the title cutting down the nets and getting Jim Nance's necktie (laughs) 
who, who you think Ryan Bertrand gets the next Ryan Bertrand, a starter <laughs> up top, will get Jim Nance's necktie awarded to the what Jim Nance thinks is the most outstanding or important or motivational player of the tournament. I don't know. He's got a sliding scale, but Ryan Bertrand could get it. Him or Solomon Kalou. Ooh, I like that. It's a good shout. I could go on and on about the 2012 final, and I think rightfully it will be there at the end. But uh, what is on the other side of the bracket there, Chris Whittingham? Yeah, so it's the first Premier League title of the modern era, so the uh, title under Jose Mourinho. We talked about how last week, 2004-05, they only allowed 15 goals in that entire season. This is an incredible defensive record that they had in winning the 0405 title against winning the double, the uh, league and the FA Cup in 2010. Uh, we mentioned the John Terry song. I'm still going to go for it, just because it's such a ridiculous achievement that 0405 season and how you know clear they were at the top of the league but I don't think we're ever going to see a title winning team concede 15 or fewer goals ever again no I mean what is old will once again be new I think uh, we're all it's a goal fest although VAR is really like hindered the amount of goals that should be there like the net is like close to 30 goals it's taken away when many of us thought it would go the other way but I do think anti-football suffocating counterattacking football. You think it'll be back at some point? I do think it'll be back. I do think there's always a place for counterattacking football. We always get to these points in time. It's certainly, it's never going away in the international game just because I think it's so well suited because you have such limited time with these players. I think counterattacking football will absolutely, there's always going to be the greases of the world. Maybe not the greases of the world because that's an upset, (laughs) the likes of which we've rarely seen on the international level, but there is always going to be a counterattacking, stingy, well-organized defensive side that is going to make a run because they are cohesive and it's hard to get everybody on the same page when you have such limited practice time. Look at that, a take fest here in the first segment. Ah, we got to work in the the Bet365 on a Tuesday night, blustery as it is. That's all all I was hoping to do with this first segment of Chelsea Mike Depp. Coming up here in our next segment, we have a really cool treat, and uh, it's a man after my own heart. Chris, we're talking to an Italian goalkeeper. As Mm. you know, this is uh, a very special (laughs) cause to me. It's a Spider-Man meme, only he's a lot better. I'm sort of like a a cartoon animated pig version of Spider-Man. Um and he's like the real deal. That's right, folks. We have the iconic Carlo Cudicini, his first cap, Chris Whittingham. This is always a big deal here on Chelsea Mic'd Up. We appreciate him. He's coming up next. Watch every minute of every match. Download the Fifth Stand, the official Chelsea app. Joining us now on Chelsea Mic'd Up is former Chelsea goalkeeper Carlo Cudicini. He was a Premier League goalkeeper of the year in 2003 and was with the club for a decade. He currently serves as the lone player technical coach. In other words, he's in charge of the lone army, folks. Carlo, welcome aboard to Chelsea Mic'd Up on your maiden voyage. We thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. So, Carlo, I wanted to start with your role currently at the club. We'll get to your history both with Chelsea and in America with MLS as well. But we want to start with your role as loan player technical coach and ultimately overseeing the group of players that are on loan from Chelsea. So can you describe what your role within what they call the loan army is? This is a a program that um, started uh, at least six or seven years ago. And uh, I only took over uh, basically this summer. So there was a lot of work that uh, has been done in these six or seven years. And and the main guy or better, the guy that was responsible for this uh, program in these six or seven years was um, Eddie Newton. That uh, was part of uh, our first team staff in the first part of the season. And now he moved on and now he's in Turkey 
as an assistant coach for a Turkish side. And what what basically this this department is doing is to make sure that um, our guys that are out on loan uh, look after uh, from the club. They, we don't want that a player that uh, is going to play uh, for another club for six months or a year or two years, you know, uh, forget about Chelsea. We don't forget about anybody. And we want to make sure that the player, since uh, he leaves the club and he goes to another club, is, you know, obviously the most important part of uh, settling in the new environment. Uh, obviously, if he's abroad, it's even more challenging because of maybe different language, uh, different culture. We have a kind of a position, I would say, a role of a mentoring the player. And, and that is uh, kind of following him in terms of following his match, going to matches, talking to the manager, talking to the assistant managers, talking to the sport director, making sure that, uh, you know, everything around him is perfect for his development. Obviously, it's, it's a very thin line because we don't want to interfere with what is the job of the current manager, where the player is. And therefore, we, we that's why we, you know, we, we really appreciate it when we have the opportunity to talk to the manager because at least we can have an idea on how the team wants to play um, or, or how the our player would like to perform and uh, as I said he's trying to making sure that uh, the player is um, doesn't feel like Chelsea or now I'm playing for another club on loan and it's not uh, it's not interest no this is not the case it's a, it's a department that uh, and it's a program that is um, spending a lot of time a lot of effort to make sure that these guys have the best chance to develop and to become top players. And can you just give us a sense of how many players are currently out on loan and what your uh, match load is on a normal weekend, right? When there's a full slate of fixtures, how many games you're watching and, and how many players you're keeping in touch with? We have 27 players out on loan at the moment. And in our department, we have two analysts that are the one that um, receive all the footage of the different matches and they cut it and they give it to the coaches. So we are four coaches plus one goalkeeper coach. Each coach has a group of players. So you tend to basically spend time looking and going visiting your group of players. Although, you know, along the season, I quite like that the coaches kind of uh, go across and watch other players uh, in, in terms of having a better knowledge of the entire department. Obviously, as a head of the department, I have to make sure that I follow or have a, a very good knowledge of about everybody. So uh, I have a bit more um, time to spend uh, following all the players. And on top of that, on top of this, um, uh, obviously, very important task that is following our guys, we also, from this season, we also following the championship, which is uh, the league that um, we feel our players can get the most out of this, this league. And therefore, we, we really want to have a, a very good knowledge on on the teams, on the clubs, on the philosophies of the different clubs in championships. So sometimes it happens that we go and watch games where none of our players are, are involved, but just to follow the team and to making sure that we know exactly how they play, how the manager wants to play, the philosophy, so that for next year we have a better understanding, a better knowledge on the different clubs. And, um, and so bet, uh, being basically better prepared in, in where to send our players. So let's talk about some of the players that have been on loan and in the Chelsea system but are now leading the first team. Let's start with Tammy Abraham, was at Villa and at Swansea. You had him when you were an assistant under Antonio Conte. Were you ready for him to play like this with the first team? 
But that shows you, you know, how important is this program? Because Tammy, and I remember um, with Antonio Conte, Tammy came in, in America, in Los Angeles with us in the preseason. And we were all positively impressed by his, his quality, although we all recognized that he was still raw in other parts of his game. And therefore, the fact that he spent two or three years alone in Swansea, Aston Villa, it was very important for his development. And also, this has to be said, you know, with the fact that uh, we were banned for one transfer windows, so we were not able to buy players. And with the fact that Frank is really keen to have young, uh, you know, in his team, that was his opportunity. But, you know, he was very good in taking this opportunity and making sure that uh, this chance that uh, the club and Frank gave it to him, you know, was the chance of his life. And he, so far, took it with both hands and he's doing a fantastic job. So, obviously, we are very pleased to see that we have a manager that really trusts the players that deserve to play. And at the same time, uh, we are very happy that, uh, you know, uh, our department can give the opportunity to these players to go out, to develop, to gain experience. And then that this experience obviously is, help, you know, help them to, once they are in the first team, help them to perform good. One of the players we've really enjoyed, and by we, neutral observer Chris Winningham, I mean me. <laughs> one of the players we've really enjoyed watching is Reese James. And one of the things that stands out the most for me just watching him is his physicality. He plays a lot bigger than he actually is, really. How did his sign with a lone army get him ready for the physical nature of first-team football in the Premier League? It's important because for, for a lot of players that are coming out from the academy, and they start playing, you know, men football, it's a very tough league to play. And championship is very demanding. There's a lot of games along the year. It's very physical. And therefore, it's very important for our players to go there and test themselves. So, Rich James uh, had a very good season last year, playing in different positions, which helped him as well to improve uh, his, his game. And this is the physicality that you find in this, uh, in this league. It's, it's the same for, for example, this season with Conor Gunnagher. You know, he's, he's, he was his first loan out of the academy, 19 years old, straight away playing for Charlton, becoming one of their, I would say, most important players. Then in January, we decided that perhaps Swansea would have been a, you know, a step forward for his development. And now he's in Swansea playing every game. And, you know, it's it's a tough league and, and, and he's almost playing every game. And, and you do learn how to kind of manage yourself, uh, when to rest, when to go out, because you're still 19 years old. So obviously, uh, they have this side of their life that uh, is, is carry on. But now they have to learn on when to rest, uh, how to train. And it's all a massive development for, for, their, for their young career. There is one player uh, who is in the Chelsea loan system who is American, and uh, that's Matt Miazga. He's currently on loan at Reading. What is your uh, report on him and, and how he's doing with, I believe, his second loan? He was formerly at Vitesse in the Netherlands. Now he's at Reading. Uh, what, what do you make of what he's doing uh, in, during his loan spells? Yeah, they also um, half a season in France. Um, so it's, you know, he went around a little bit, and I think it's, it's very important for your uh, you know experience to have a different experience around around Europe because you can learn different things and at the moment he's in Reading and is uh, established as obviously a championship center back this season he was a bit unlucky with the, with injuries he had uh, you know long injuries for his hamstring and then he hurt his his ankle we kept him out for almost 6 weeks so it wasn't like a smooth um, season for him, but he was back in the team just uh, after the injury. 
that he suffered with his ankle and and then the stop uh, the you know the coronavirus arrived and they decided to stop everything right and, and he and he's a bit disappointed me i guess because um he was looking forward to finish the season strong in order to have uh, an opportunity you know next year to perhaps make the step and and try to get uh, in premier league or perhaps in in a top five uh, league around europe so as I said, it's a pity that uh, obviously the, the, everything stopped at the minute, especially for him. And we'll see what is going to happen, perhaps if uh, if we carry on in, in the summer or not. Obviously, uh, remain to be seen. But uh, Matt is actually one of the players that I'm looking after. So he's, he's in my group and, and I love to work with him because he's a guy that is um, keen to learn. He, he you know, he, he really loves to, to, to have... Um, to have conversation about situation in the game, he really likes to to learn. He's driven by obviously the work on the pitch, but uh, he's driven by the work also off the pitch. And and this is as a mentor and as a coach, is obviously a joy because uh, you feel like um, it's a time well spent because you have somebody that's listening that he wants to improve. And this is what I really like about Matt. On top of obviously his qualities on the pitch. So I want to transition now to your career with Chelsea, which lasted 10 years. First, oddly enough, on loan in 1999 and then permanent in 2000. Uh, What made you decide to want to move from Italy uh, to England and and play for Chelsea? And uh, how would you describe your arrival at the club? Well, it's pretty easy. I I was playing for a team in uh, Serie C, which is uh, like a League One in England. And um, although the team performed quite well this season, there was a lot of rumour for me going to Napoli, which was in Serie B. And then Chelsea manager at the time, Gianluca Vialli, called me and uh, basically asked me if uh, I was willing to join the club as a second goalkeeper. And obviously, um, you know, I, at that time I was 26, so not anymore in my prime, I would say. And uh, I thought that was uh, probably a very good opportunity for me to make my career taking off again. After, you know, my time as a Similan and then a Lazio, I felt my career was kind of slowing down a little bit. And, and I felt that that was a, another opportunity to make it count. And therefore, I thought that... Um, it was a, a big opportunity that uh, I couldn't I couldn't miss, and therefore I, I moved the first year. As you said, the first season was on loan. I had one appearance in in my first season, so not a lot. But you know, as a goalkeeper, it's never easy. And then the club decided to sign permanently, and it was a, an easy decision for me to agree on that. And from there, my career took off again. It was uh, with a lot of surprise from a lot of people in England because, uh, you know, at that time, Chelsea was importing, you know, big names as Gianfranco Zola, uh, Ruth Gullit, uh, Di Matteo, Casiraghi, so obviously Vialli, so big players with big names. And the fact that um, after getting from £150,000, so not all the money, <laughs> I, I, I managed to make my way in the first team and, and, and play for a few years was obviously in a way a surprise and a, and, a, and, a, and a nice story that everyone embraced and, and it was always very affectionate and you know towards me and towards my my career I ended up being at Chelsea for 10 years and, and now I've been back at the club uh, for four years working as a coach and it's a fantastic story obviously uh, at the time that I received the call from, from Gianluca 
I would have never thought that uh, it could have gone this way. You were a regular goalkeeper for four years at Chelsea, but then Petr Cech arrived. Can you describe what the situation was and ultimately how it felt to be competitive with one of the best goalkeepers really ever? So Petr Cech was um, basically brought in by Claudio Ranieri in January when basically he finished the season and then he got the sack. And then obviously Peter Cech arrived, but people sometimes mistake and thinking that uh, it was Jose Mourinho that brought him at the club, but instead it was actually Claudio Ranieri. And the reason why it was, uh, well, on paper, he was actually uh, to be uh, my number two. But then obviously, you know, a new season started. He had a very good Euros in Portugal, if, I, if I'm not mistaken. And um, it was a long break for me. Probably, and, and you know, I can say now that I'm 46, I can say I can say now, probably I didn't prepare properly for the new season, mm-hmm. thinking that, obviously, I was starting. And, and he arrived. He was uh, definitely uh, more fit than me because he only had a couple of weeks break after the, the Euros. So he was, um, he was definitely fit, fitter than me. And it took me a bit of time to get back in the rhythm during the pre-season. And bottom line, the manager made his decision. And obviously for Petr and for the club ended up uh, being a fantastic decision because obviously, as you mentioned, Petr uh, is obviously now rated one of the best goalkeepers of this era. But obviously for me, if, uh, it was disappointing. It was uh, disappointing and it was uh, difficult to accept. But uh, it's part of football. So I had to kind of make sure that Petr didn't have a, a nice life uh, in terms of uh, I tried to push him every single training session. And that, in my opinion, probably helped him to, to perform the way he performed as well, knowing that if he would have put a, a step, you know, I was probably ready to, to get back my place. So I think he worked fantastically well for the club and for the team because... Uh, there was a, a, a very healthy competition in that position and, and I felt that uh, probably I helped push him Petr to his best. But at the same time, I created with Petr a fantastic relationship, a work relationship, but also a friendship relationship. Uh, now, obviously, we're, we're back working together, but uh, even in the time where I was at Tottenham or he was at Arsenal, uh, we were always in touch and um, and and is a is a relationship that we we cherish in terms of uh, obviously a long time that we spend uh, you know that we are to spending time together even now at the club again and last one before we let you go you eventually moved to the United States with LA Galaxy you play here for a season what did you make of uh, football and MLS at the time and uh, what do you remember about your time with LA Although probably I would say my football experience wasn't great uh, and probably what maybe uh, supporters or Galaxy supporters were expecting because I have to be honest about it. I had an unbelievable experience. Um, I got to know people that I'm still in contact with now. I had a fantastic journey that was for a year, basically, in a fantastic city. And I really miss, uh, you know, that that time. Unfortunately, I would say, unfortunately, that that the football side of it... uh, you know, it was a bit disappointing for me personally because I felt that, um, you know, coming from a different country, even though, uh, so although you, you know, you're coming from the best league in the world and everyone expecting you to, to perform or to be one of the best players uh, in, in MLS when you went together, it's not that easy. It's a different culture, it's a different mentality. And so you, you do need time to adapt. And I, and I don't use this as an excuse because I was, uh, you know, you, we can see uh, other players that they, they move to the MLS and they struggle, especially in their first season. So I felt that in a way, I would have loved to perhaps have another 
um, another opportunity in terms of to have a bit more time to adapt to the different culture, to the different uh, mentality, to the different football or soccer, like you like you call it over there. But obviously this didn't happen and it was a, a regret that I have because moving to the MLS was always uh, one of my dream, I would say, because I I, I, I love the, the, the culture, the sports culture that you have in the US. And, and, and it's something that um, I always said to myself, I, I would love to have the opportunity to go there and and you know and play and play football there and, and perhaps try to give and pass whatever I learned in my career to the young guys coming up and I felt that my experience obviously was very short unfortunately it last as as long as I would have loved to and this is a regret I have to I have to be honest but you know in football unfortunately uh, is you know sometimes it can be like that Carlo Cudicini was a goalkeeper at Chelsea for 10 years and is currently the lone player technical coach in other words in charge of the lone army at Chelsea Football Club Carlo we very much appreciate the time we hope you and your family are staying safe during this coronavirus pandemic thank you very much same to you guys Thank you very much. Bye-bye. Welcome back to Chelsea Miked Up. I've been promising for a couple of weeks now an extended Chelsea Miked Up mailbag segment, and you will get that here. I also have been threatening. You heard me in the intro. I've got something for Kareem Benzema because I think he crossed the line and we're going to get to some interesting transfer talk that is out there on Twitter because this is our sports right now. Wondering what might be. And there's You love transfer talk. I, I, you, you get sick of the rumors sometimes, but there's nothing that gets you going like some transfer rumors. Chris, I love transfer talk when I'm in charge of putting out a podcast every week and I'm in desperate <laughs> need for content. So let's go to the most recent one that has the most traction. Chris Whittingham, go ahead. Your opportunity to phonetically... And accurately pronounce Gabriel. What's name? Magayesh. Magayesh. Uh, I, I, yeah, I had to. Uh, I, I had to look it up on uh, a pronounced names in Portuguese website. Sometimes goes by Gabriel for short. He's been a center back for Lille. Now this would be the second rumored signing. Now we don't know if it's done from the Champions League group stage. That basically their scouting is oh. He looks good. We'll take him. And Gabriel Magalhães is a player, 22 years old. He's from Brazil. He didn't really play too much in Brazil. Very quickly moved to France with Lille. Had a couple of, had a loan spell with Dinamo Zagreb in Croatia. But he's been a regular starter this year. He started he started 24 times in the league for Lille and also played some in the Champions League, all six games in the Champions League. So this is a player who's impressed. Is a strong center back. Has scored once in the league as well in this campaign. And some of the big time outlets are reporting his link with Chelsea (laughs) sniffing around it seems legit here's why because you mentioned it's another player from Chelsea's Champions League group the Ziyech deal happened similar to this one which is why I feel like there's actually something to this now we must put out there that this is all speculation nothing's been confirmed by either club right now but am I wrong to get the Ziyech feels because it feels a lot like it and it's a left-footed tall center back. This has been a reported need, and forget reported need. Just watching Chelsea, a tall center back that can be trusted, and can be healthy and fit. This guy looks like a total load. I'm going to call him Gab because I am not going to that same website. <laughs> Gab, you seem like a player. Like, you look the part. Now, I have not been watching much of Lille outside of the group fixtures in the Champions League. But I do remember this guy, and my impression was, that dude's a load. 
absolute low. <laughs> so, and it yeah. would see, and the reported numbers that are out there make it very comparable to the Ziyech deal as well. This feels accurate too, because it seems as though Chelsea have been working in the shadows with their transfer deals lately, Chris. And not necessarily going for the biggest names either of them. I mean, and obviously Hakim Ziyech and the whole Ajax attack made headlines when they made it to the Champions League semifinal. But, you know, this isn't, you know, going for Mbappe when he was at Monaco or this, you know, exploding name. The other one that I saw uh, from the Champions League group stage was Chelsea were linked with the Ajax left back, Nicolas Tagliafico, the Argentina left back as well. Another player who, young, developing at a club that is now developed a, a reputation for developing young players. So I think that this signing absolutely makes sense. Uh, he seems to be one of the more promising prospects. Has not yet appeared for Brazil at international level, but you can't imagine that's far off given how they have some aging players like Miranda and Thiago Silva playing at the back for them. So you'd imagine a full Brazil call-up is on the way and a move to Chelsea might certainly help with that. So you touched on it. I like transfer talk to a degree, unless we reach like Sancho levels of now it's just all misdirection and agent smoke and What's the club saying here and all sorts of posturing and you can't believe anything at this point when it comes to Jaden Sancho until he's holding up a jersey. But I really get excited about the initial goings and this would sort of be in line with what it feels like right now is an evolution in how Chelsea do transfer business. Look, when Roman Abramovich first became owner of Chelsea, he changed football. The accusations are always, you know, ruined football because... To many football fans out there, it felt like Roman Abramovich was just spilling money everywhere. Well, now, owners all took that template. And Roman Abramovich, he doesn't have the same resources as, you know, some of these other clubs do. That's just a fact of the matter at this point. So, Chelsea have to work smarter in an era in which they're not outspending people. Look, they're doing plenty of spending. Christian Pulisic was the top 10 transfer of all time in the Premier League. People seem to forget that. But I do think that there has been a very clear and obvious pivot. Chelsea have become a more resourceful club and getting some of these bargains that no one really linked them to. And you automatically get linked publicly to this. I think Roman and, and all of Chelsea have learned that that just brings up the price. So mm -hmm. operating in the shadows has not only saved them some money but might signal a, a new chapter in Chelsea's business. And one of the things that has changed so dramatically from when Roman Abramovich started doing this is the raw prices have gone up considerably. If you go back and look at the signings that they made back then, they would seem like bargain signings now. To bring in the DDA Drogba from France was an incredible bargain compared to what you would pay now. And now really, like... A big club only really has room to make one big Jaden Sancho kind of signing, right? Whereas before, you know, teams would try and pull off three and four in one window. But to really go and get a player like Sancho is going to cost you $100 million to $130 million. You only got room to make one of those. And so the others, you have to moneyball a little bit. And I think that's what Chelsea are doing and some of the smarter clubs are doing is moneyballing these signings. So with that being said, I want to get into something that actually really stuck in my maw. Chris Whittingham. Mm. I don't know what the origins of this was. I don't know if this was a leading question at any point, but Karen Benzema took what felt like a very unnecessary pot shot at Olivier Giroud, who by all accounts has handled this season as professionally as you could ever dream. We all know that he wanted to go to Italy. We all know that it seemed as though it was right on the doorstep, him going to Inter Milan. He wanted to play more. He wasn't getting the opportunities here. All of a sudden, at Chelsea, he's called upon. Chelsea turned to him in a time of need, and Olivier Giroud 
delivers. Unlocking teams that are locking Chelsea down with that killer hair and an amazing back heel <laughs> flip. He is all of a sudden helping your team secure points in a way that they hadn't really since November. Olivier Giroud had been a total pro. So when you see this comment from Karim Benzema, look, this is not an argument of who the better player is. Karim Benzema has proven in Cristiano Ronaldo's absence that he is quite a great goal scorer for that club. He's been a very good player. He's one of the all-time Real Madrid forwards when you look at it statistically. On the international level, without getting into full details, Karim Benzema, not exactly the greatest teammate, okay? <laughs> like, run a Google search. Olivier yeah. Giroud is like the epitome of head down, doing the dirty work. He is a World Cup champion. He is a striker. Their currency is goals, Chris Whittingham. And he, his whole existence was to do dirty work and free other players up and work sort of like an anti-striker. And for someone of Kareem Benzema's ilk, especially on the national team side, given his reputation, to take a pot shot when he says, here's the quote, you can't confuse an F1 car with a go-kart, and I'm being kind. That's being kind? I've had all sorts of preconceived notions about Karim Benzema. Look, I've never met the man. I've just read the reports. To say this is utterly confusing and unnecessary. Yeah, and I think it probably comes from a place of bitterness. And just to clear up where it came from, he seemed to be doing an Instagram Live with a friend. And oh, I guess uh, somehow in the comments... Someone mentioned that, you know, he didn't start for France or, you know, comparing him to Giroud or whatever. And look, at the World Cup in which France won, Olivier Giroud did not score a goal. He had one assist. And he started every single game at the center forward position. But you know what? It didn't matter. And that really goes to prove how good of a teammate Olivier Giroud is and what he does to help teams succeed because they scored four goals in two games. They were the best team of the World Cup without their center forward doing much. And Karim Benzema acted his way off of the French national team. And look, I really like Karim Benzema as a player. Like, I was watching him play for Real Madrid uh, during this quarantine break on, on some highlights. He's had a great season. Like, Karim Benzema's a good player. But to take a shot at someone, it's clearly fueled out of Giroud plays for the national team and I don't. Like, what, what is that? It's jealousy. And, it's right, jealousy. of course. It absolutely is jealousy. It's jealousy. And it comes down to the fact that Giroud is playing and Benzema isn't. And... Ultimately, the dynamics of national teams, which is very often people think of them as all-star teams where it's, let's put the 11 best players from a country. And no, that's not how it works. And all credit to Didier Deschamps for making this work because France is a good national team because Giroud is part of it. Like, you have to have glue guys that make it work. And Giroud is the ultimate glue guy for a national team. The key to France's national team success, because we all looked at their club and said, with all this talent, they should be favored. But we've watched them in this World Cup buildup and they just seem like a mess. They can't play together. And Didier Deschamps realized, I need to free other players up. I need to unleash Pogba. I need to unleash Mbappe and Griezmann. And the only way that I can do that is by having certain players do dirty work. And guess who those players were, Chris Whittingham? They were Chelsea players. They were N'Golo yep. Kante and they were Olivier Giroud. This was a thankless job. Although N'Golo Kante got plenty of the glory, he got one of the more banging songs that are out there <laughs> for his performance out there. But on the spectrum, like the teammate scale, the great teammate scale, honestly, you could hold up Olivier Giroud as one of the best teammates ever when it comes to national team football, given the accolades that he checked at the door in order to be able to lift that World Cup for his country. And on the opposite side of that spectrum is Karim Benzema. Yep. It's as simple as that. Has nothing to do with talent. 
more goes into being a good national team player, being somebody that fits, and just generally being a good person than being an F1 car, Kareem. And with that, we go into our mailbag this week. Chris Whittingham, what are the fine questions? Lead us off. We'll start with Nero in Gaithersburg, Maryland, who writes, do you think signing Alex Deus, uh, who is a left back who's been rumored, uh, Jaden Sancho, and Luka Jovic of Real Madrid would make Chelsea a title contender next season? Do I think the signing of all of them at once? Yeah, <laughs> I mean, yeah. If, 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 that, if that was their window, if that was their transfer window, yes. are they a title contender? Uh, Telly's, uh does fit this sort of profile in terms of under-the-radar signings at, at a perceived value that a more resourceful Chelsea might make. I think he's an interesting player. We got into Jovic a lot in the last episode. I was a fan when he was at Frankfurt, which, by the way, under manager Mike Ruiz in FIFA, is <laughs> on an unbelievable campaign right now. We're talking top three in the Bundesliga and have reached the quarterfinals of the Champions League. I mean, the fans are going crazy in Frankfurt right now. Is Luka Jovic banging him in for fun? No, 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 it's not. I've made Andre Silva the leading goal scorer in the Bundesliga, oh. who is my third-string <laughs> striker. And our show's amazing relationship with Chelsea as being the only official Chelsea podcast that's out there has given me some tremendous prices on Chelsea players. Pedro, Van Ginkel, Tamori, come on down. Yes, and there's only one Billy Gilmore who, under my tutelage, has boosted that overall rating to over 70 because of all the cone wow. drills we've been doing during all our downtime. And I'm I, look, I, I know how to press all the right buttons. I know this was not the question in, in the mailbag. Tactical masterclass. <laughs> but when it comes to working the press to boost my team's morale, there is nobody better. And I mean You're a good that. man manager? Uh, dude, I am incredible. <laughs> I am incredible at pressing the right buttons. Maybe not so much when I'm playing the games, but when I'm in the press room. The question, though, is if we sign Alex Elias, Jaden Sancho, and Jovic, would that make Chelsea a title contender? Yes, but signing Jaden Sancho on his own without the other two players would make Chelsea a title contender, I believe. Jaden Sancho is an unbelievably special player. You're going to see if he moves on, and that's the growing momentum. In fact, Bruce Dortmund just came out and said, if Sancho wants to make a move, who are we to stand in his way? It seems as though all signs point to Sancho coming back to his home country of England, and hopefully Chelsea's that club. He's an amazing player, especially in FIFA. A devil to keep off the score sheet. Let Oof. me tell you. I've been watching uh, a lot of YouTube highlights of Dortmund as well, and it's like it's crazy how every goal he has an involvement in some way. Like his square pass from the wing is incredible. The pace is ridiculous. Like he's got everything in the toolbox to be a top-level world footballer. So, like, I mean, I fell in love. He's one of the players. Oddly enough, Kareem Benzema was one of them, <laughs> but one of the players during this quarantine that I've enjoyed watching on YouTube highlights. Yeah, I mean, it feels as though we could say this like over the last decade with Dortmund. Man, if they only kept this team together, yeah. they are definitely winning a Champions League in their future. But that's not the way that Dortmund get down. They don't keep their their players there they have their identity and god bless them for it because we got christian pulisic and lord knows i'm hoping to get Jaden sancho and erling holland there we go for the uh, chelsea <laughs> I, like I like for i like for the cough you did it into your sleeve yeah, just to be a fake cough friendly. yeah coronavirus <laughs> friendly shout out to everyone that's out there fighting the good fight okay here we go the next question here on the mailbag as i reach in it's what's your predicted best lineup for next season, including the assumed healthy returns of Pulisic, Callum Hudson-Odoi, Ruben Loftus-Cheek, and the addition of Ziak. Man, honestly, again, if I can harken back to my FIFA roots, I don't like guaranteeing playing time for anybody. 
I like what Frank Lampard has done. I like him taking the best 11 at the time. He doesn't have a set best 11 for the season. It's what are you doing on the training ground? What are you doing with the opportunities I give you? I think that might be his calling card. Granted, he's had a deck stacked against him this season, but he's proven to be quite the resourceful tactician and quite the ever-evolving tactician. So I'm not sure there is a best, but if I were making the lineup... I'm not going to assume the signings that are out there, even though there's a lot of smoke. And I, I did the sniff thing in the microphone, which was rather disgusting, especially in the current <laughs> climate. But Reese James is going to be our right back. I feel very confident yeah. in saying that. I still think Aspiliqueta is going to be the starting left back. Center back, I do think that there's going to be a change there. And it's interesting. I, I know Larry Nance and Josh Hart touched on this. I would really like to see some more of Tamori. Not really sure what's happened with Fick and him falling out of favor. I felt like we were playing some of our best football there with Fick. There must be more to it there. Um, and Golo Conte, we'll, we probably will tackle this in a future episode. I know we've ta- touched on it with his health situation, but I don't know if this is a player that you start looking at to fund some of these moves. If you're mm-hmm. in the in for the likes of Sancho, and Golo Conte comes with a price tag that might help fund some of these moves, even though you've built up quite the uh, slush fund over the last two years, over the last two transfer windows, I should say. I think this is a money question. Is Christian Pulisic going to be in the starting 11 next year? Willian, probably gone unless they work out some sort of extension. Willian and Pedro... Older players that are out of contract in the summer. Callum Hudson-Odoi struggling to come back from Achilles. Thankfully, he's healthy and recovered from his bout with coronavirus. But it seems as though it's taking him a minute to get back to the player that he showed more than glimpses of the previous season. I think Ziyech and Christian Pulisic are your wingers at this point. I reserve the right to change that. Now to the next question. Ruben Loftus-Cheek? You know what? Maybe. <laughs> I, I I can't tell you what kind of player Ruben Loftus-Cheek was because I, I wasn't going to lie to you and tell you what kind of player Callum Hudson-Odoi is. I am more cautious with that injury than most, and I know you're the same way, Chris. Yeah, and I think you need to have evidence that he is back to being the same player because I think we all agree that if it's the same Ruben Loftus-Cheek that was playing towards the end of that Maurizio Sarri season that kind of helped, as you say, save his job and win him a trophy, that is absolutely a player who should start week in, week out. But And he's the perfect kind of number eight, right? Whether it's Jorginho or Conte holding and let's say Mason Mount or Ross Barkley playing in front of him, the player in between that's perfect for Ruben Loftus-Cheek's role. The question is, when he does eventually return and now he has extra time to recover, are you getting the same guy back? And all evidence of Achilles injury says no, but we've also not seen a recovery period this long that's going to be forced upon him because of this coronavirus. It's honestly an impossible question to answer because there's so many unknowns. Billy Gilmore, his emergence, he was riding so much positive momentum. What does this sort of layoff from football mean for his development? Is he going to be an even better player the next time we see him? What does that mean for Jorginho? And I can't give you a starting 11 if I've got no clue who the keeper is going to be. And there's all sorts of mystery regarding the keeper position. Heck, I can't tell you who the starting keeper is going to be week to week, let alone next season. Yeah, and and I haven't seen too many credible rumors either about who could be uh, in line to be a good potential goalkeeper signing. I mean, there's some obvious candidates, but given the fact that Frank laid out a pretty significant signal that, hey, I'm thinking about making a goalkeeper change by starting Willie Caballero, who's 37 years old and obviously not the future, then you'd have to imagine they're going to be thinking about a long-term goalkeeper replacement. There's Onana from Ajax. There's a few, I mean, Jan Oblak at Atleti, if Atleti would, would consider sanctioning that sale. But uh, we don't know who else he's, could be out there. He's a good player, there. Chris. 
He's a good yeah, player. Well, Chris well we, we saw him in, the, in, in that Liverpool second leg, but yeah. uh, there, there are some other signs that he's been a bit up and down. But yes, generally, he's one of the best goalkeepers in the yeah, world. Yeah, last year, for my money, I would have placed him atop my list. And this year, as I understand it, he's been struggling, but I watched that Liverpool game, and that was the old block that I'm used to seeing. Henderson's uh, also a very interesting keeper to keep in mind. Yes. I'm, I'm not really sure what happens with or De even Or even De Gea. Yeah, well, cause, because because if Man United decide they want to keep Henderson, then De Gea becomes expendable. Yeah, if it were up to me and I were Man United, I would probably side with Henderson there. I just think he's a, a really, really good keeper from what I've seen. That'll do it for us this week. Make sure to tune in to us next week where we'll miss football some more. And <laughs> it might just end up being an entire episode dedicated to my Frankfurt Champions League final <laughs> as we march on. <laughs> Honestly, manager Mike Ruiz has some decisions to make this offseason mm. because limited resources over there in Frankfurt, and I got a vision, and Erling Haaland's got a release clause in <laughs> FIFA 20. What can you do for Mike Ruiz, Mr. Manager? Up the Chelsea.